This is The Talking Dead, a podcast dedicated to the AMC TV show, The Walking Dead. Hello, everybody. My name is Chris. And my name is Jason. And this is The Talking Dead number 85 for Monday, August the 20th, 2012. 20th already, eh? It's the 20th already. Summer's it's, over. It's almost Labor Day. Summer's almost over. But that means that The talk, the Walking Dead will be back on the air All before that much sooner, yeah. you know it. <clears throat> well, it'll be after I know it, because I know it right now. But it'll be soon, no doubt. <laughs> soon, no doubt. Happy Discovery, Yukon Discovery Day to you, Jason. Is today the day they discovered the Yukon? Today is a um, statutory holiday in the Yukon. Nice. Yukon's Discovery Day is celebrated in Yukon, Canada, on the third Monday of August, also known as Klondike Gold Discovery Day. It commemorates the anniversary of the discovery of gold in the Yukon. Nice. It. You know how all the provinces have a statutory holiday in August at some point? We had ours yep. like a few weeks ago. Simcoe Day? <clears throat> That's right. Well, in the Yukon, it's Yukon Discovery Day, nice. and it's the third Monday. So uh, I wanted to mention that for all of our listeners in the Yukon and wish you a happy statutory holiday today. That's great. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> uh, I don't know why they can't just standardize holidays across the country, but it's a whole different well, topic. No, I we got the, you know, it's a, it's a big damn country, right? So having standardized holidays would be nice, but it really doesn't give you the provincial <clears throat> diversity that uh, this this great vast country we have deserves. That's true, I suppose. I suppose I, I guess you want everyone to celebrate their own local local uh, observances. Yeah, and we get things like family day. Right. That's just made up. It it is well, absolutely it's made up. It's just it's a it's some Monday in February or whatever it is. Right. It's in February and it's only a few years old for us in Ontario anyways. Yes. I think BC has had family day for a while. Well, we needed to equalize. We had less vacation statutory <clears throat> uh, holidays in Ontario than the other provinces, yeah. so they needed to give us a new one. Yeah, exactly. I'm okay with it. It's right around my birthday. I'm fine with it. There you go. You can celebrate your family on your birthday. Well, the total population of the Yukon is 33,000 people. That is like the population of my street. <laughs> yeah, that is not a lot of people. <laughs> that is not a lot. I have been to Dawson City, though. I have been up have through you? the Yukon. Yep, I've been up to Alaska, only momentarily in Alaska. Just crossed the border, had lunch, came back. Right. Um, but look, the, look the, kids, Alaska. <laughs> the trip, yeah, the trip was, it was, I was 17 years old. The trip was the important part. We drove from Calgary to Alaska and back to Edmonton. Wow. And uh, stopping in Dawson City was one of the most interesting parts of the trip, I got to admit. Okay, we got to talk about that a little more off air because I used to live in northern Alberta. And if you, did you go, you went up through BC, I guess. Uh, well, we drove the Alaska Highway. Right. It was that at the time, I think it was the, it was an anniversary of some kind. I, I was going to say 50th, but that seems like the road would be a little older than that, but maybe not. I mean, that's pretty far north. Yes, so I don't know. far north. But uh, it was dri- drive the Alaska Highway from Calgary to basically Alaska. So it was pretty fun. I went with my friend Gord and his mom and his grandfather. Oh, nice. Yeah. And the, one of the things, I mean, I remember lots from the trip, but I remember um, uh, standing at some rest stop lookout area at some point way up north and the lookout was kind of raised and there's this big expanse of land out in front of us that um, uh, it was it was actually a gorge, right. but uh, a very, very large one. And it didn't really look like it because it was so big. It just looked like the, the world gorge. dropped off for a while then went on forever. So you saw a gorge with gourd? 
Uh, yes, but what I remember about it is standing there with all of us and his grandfather going, I don't see any gorge. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're awesome. like, you know, I understand it doesn't look like it, but it's the biggest thing you've ever seen. So <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, it was a good time. It was, uh, it was a fun trip. So happy Yukon Discovery Day. So happy Yukon Discovery Day. And there you go. Congratulations to everyone in the Yukon. <laughs> Before we get into the Walking Dead news this week, as always, I need to remind everyone of our contest that's currently running. Mm-hmm. And maybe uh, give people a little hint of an upcoming contest. But for now, it's our Best Way to Kill a Zombie contest. The deadline is the Season 3 premiere night. That is October 14th, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And we will announce the winner on our podcast for the episode that airs on the 14th. And our podcast will be on the 15th. <laughs> I'll be okay. Don't worry. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. And uh, so what you have to do is go over to Facebook and post there your favorite way to kill a zombie. You can also enter by email by just sending it in to talkingdeadpodcast at gmail.com, and that will get you on the list as well. We'll choose the winner, and uh, you will get a fancy prize pack, including a Walking Dead uh, courier bag, um, a couple of things stuffed inside there, too. We'll figure that out later. So go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetalkingdead, and post on our wall your favorite way to kill a zombie. That's all you have to do to enter. It's very exciting. This is amazing. I was just looking at the top 10 cities, the top 10 largest cities in the Yukon by uh, population, uh, the top one being Whitehorse at 22,000 people. Yeah, I was there too. The 10th was is Mayo at 248. Mayo? Yeah, M-A-Y-O. Jesus, I've never even heard of Mayo. And it, uh, at 248, and it hits the top 10. Well, <laughs> what number is it? Uh, number 10. Oh, okay. What number is Dawson City? Dawson two. City is number two with 1,300 people. Right. Dawson City, the thing I remember about that is that it there at the time, there were very few, if any, um, certified roads. So you got like nine-year-olds riding around in cars and stuff like that because there weren't real roads. Right, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a private property. You can do whatever you want. Exactly. So no, all unassumed roads, which was fun. That's awesome. I'm so going there. That's such, I, I, I want to leave right now. All right. It's a cool trip. Before you leave, though, let's do this. Okay. The Walking Dead News. All right, we got a lot of stuff to get through here, so uh, it's too bad that A Block took so long. But Okay, we'll talk to- twice as fast. <laughs> That's right go twice as fast and if you play the podcast back at double speed it'll be like we're going four times as fast oh good math new details on activision's the walking dead this is the activision game that is coming up sometime next year mm-hmm. not to be confused with the telltale game that is currently released that's telltale games this is an activision game. this is activision yeah. exactly uh as we know the game already stars uh stars the dixon brothers and i believe you play as daryl right but I've got a couple of quotes here on sort of how decisions are made in the game and how it affects gameplay. This comes from TheVerge.com and DailyDead.com. First of all, every threat needs to be assessed and every situation analyzed. Players will choose whether to stay and fight while risking a gruesome death or use stealth to avoid the undead. Resources are scarce and scattered. Gamers will have to not only ration supplies, but carefully consider their food, medical needs, ammunition, and other goods as survival in the game is based upon wit and intellect. So what I take away from that is there isn't going to be a lot of actual fighting in this game. Awesome. That's actually good. I like that. Yeah, it's it makes... it's. There's been enough fighting games. There have been enough point and shoot and all fighting games. sort of games. This is a little bit more about how do I actually survive? And maybe that will involve some zombie killing, but probably not. Right. 
Sounds cool. That sounds awesome. Um, Another quote, you will make decisions by comparing the statistical or practical bonuses each unique survivor can bring to your party. Do you take on the hunter who is more helpful in a firefight or the doctor who is better at scavenging for vital medicine? Do you take one or the other over the mother of a lost child who you're ferrying across the country or find a larger car that can hold all three but consumes more gas and moves slower in the process? So there's a lot of variables here, it sounds like. There is, but are they actually going to give you this statistical uh, chance of success? That's a good question. Are they going to give you the numbers, or is it all going to be gut check stuff? I I really don't know. Um, They do – it specifically says the statistical or practical bonuses each unique survivor can bring to your party. So it sounds like there might actually be some numbers you can use or something you can use to analyze the actual – results of taking making a decision one way or the other. Or they might just list advantages, right? Well, that's... Like advantage. Yeah. You have a car, right? If you're trying to find a car or advantage, she has a shotgun, you know? Well, th- th- those are good things to know, you know? Yeah, but I don't want them to give you, you know, a 37% probability of surviving the next 10 minutes if you uh, take this woman with a shotgun and you have a 22.4% chance of survival if you get in the car. Well, they can't really say... You know, chance of survival because you don't know what's coming up next, right? It's more just, you know, it's more just you might gain a plus four to, you know, firefight attacks because this guy has a shotgun, right, for future fighting. Or you might gain an extra five health packs per turn or whatever because this is a this is a doctor. Yeah, this, this kind of thing actually kind of worries me a little bit because uh, you have uh, let's make a deal gaming going on and we try to avoid that in uh tabletop role-playing games like is uh when you're playing when you're playing D or champions or shadow run or some other game there it's all rules based and you have uh you know die rolls and you have pluses and minuses and everything has bonuses and stuff and if you start min maxing everything uh you can really make a character uh statistically powerful but really kind of stupid and lame the idea is to breathe some life into the uh, into the game and into the characters so you kind of let things slide like yeah sure he only has an 8 intelligence but i can explain that by blah 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 instead of uh you know playing the numbers just strictly the numbers well is it better to to try to make a character that's a little bit more well balanced than focus everything into their strength of hitting or something like that uh well it's a matter of how you want to play how we used to play is we'd want to role play this kind of stuff instead of uh you know if you put every everything into their strength right. for bashing that hammer. Yeah, he's going to be really good with the hammer, but he's not going to be a real well-rounded character. Right. He's going to be a dunce that's ugly as sin that <laughs> has this big hammer and hits things, and sure, he can take a hit every now and again, but uh, you know he's got a low constitution, so he gets sick when he eats leaves. Right. You know? I see. So, so you do want some sort of balance. Yeah, so I'm worried that if they're going to give you all the statistical probabilities or whatever the... Uh, you know, whatever numbers they're going to give you for survival, in my mind, that has a danger of taking away from the enjoyment of a game. Yeah, okay. I can see that. Too much, too much uh, to analyze. Yeah. Right? You just want to sometimes play. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's the deal. We'll find out when it comes out in 2013. There's no release date, but uh, who knows? There's could a release be, year. Yeah, it could be the fall next year for all we December know. December 31st, be. 2013. <laughs> 11.59 p.m. <laughs> we made our deadline. Yay! <laughs> All right, sticking on the video game theme for now. Most players try to do the right thing in the Telltale Walking Dead game. So this is the other game. They released a video that included a whole bunch of statistics for um, the decisions in that game. 
And here are a few of them. 85% of players decided to chop off high school teacher David's leg to save him from approaching walkers. Me too. Uh, I I didn't the first time, but right. then I did. It's the only way to keep him alive, if for only a short time. <clears throat> Pointless decision. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, some of these might be a little spoilery moving forward, so if you haven't played episode two of the game, I apologize, but jump ahead. And going backward, too. Uh, right. <laughs> when faced with a crossbow-wielding crazy woman, 87% of the players chose to wait instead of shooting her in cold blood. Hmm. Uh, I did that too the first time. I don't remember. Okay. 80% chose to spare the life of demented dairy farmer Andy St. John. He's the second of the dairy farmers. Oh, yes. And I... I shot him. I think I let them both live the first in my main game, and I, I killed them both in my secondary game. Good for you. So Telltale Games Senior Director of Marketing, Richard Igo, said it's fascinating because even when we offer players a decision where the apparently darker option might make more sense from a purely logical point of view, they often try to choose the higher ground at personal cost, even if that means being put in danger or having a relationship with another character suffer because of it. Right. So does this mean human beings are inherently good? <laughs> Because we try if, to take the higher ground in a video game? I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> I think that uh, when given a decision with uh, no real-world consequences, people will choose good when they're in a good mood. And when you're playing a video game, how could you not be in a good mood? So it doesn't have any bearing on real life? No, <clears throat> I don't think it does. All right. Much so, like video games, and even when on the flip side of the coin, you know, violence in video games doesn't necessarily cause violence in real life because I don't think that people make real-world life-changing decisions in video games. So if you were walking through the forest and you came across a guy who was stuck in a bear trap and you had an axe and there were, um, let's not even say zombies, but let's say there were hungry wolves approaching, right? would you chop his leg off? No. No. But no. you would in a video game. Uh, I would in a video game because, uh, one, there's a paranormal creature with, uh, you know, human fear built into it coming in, coming at you, right? They don't stop. They don't, uh, they don't, you know, they're not afraid of anything. They're coming after you. They right. will not stop. They will kill you. Wolves, on the other hand, there's ways to fend them off for a little while. Make a loud noise. And if you uh, start beating bushes and making loud noises, you'll at least give yourself some time before they attack, which means you have some time to figure out what the hell's going on with this trap and why it's been rigged to not open. Right. right? So wolves you can deal with. And okay. wolves generally won't... How many people were in the clearing at that point? Ten? There were, there were a bunch. Four or five, anyways. Yeah. Uh, wolves will not attack a group of that, group of that size. All right. Well, Grizzly let's... bears wouldn't attack a group of that size. Really? Grizzly bears not. eat anything, won't yeah, they? Yeah, but they're not dumb. They're not going to attack a friggin' pack of something else. They're All gonna... right. What if there were other malicious humans coming after you at that point? That's a whole different story. Because they're not afraid of other people. Well, these people wouldn't be anyways. Yeah. It, it'd be a tough choice, but I'd, I don't think I'd have the stomach to, no. to do that. No, me either. <laughs> me either. I would so... probably go and either try and reason with the other group of people coming or uh fend them off somehow make it an undesirable situation but you can't do that with zombies no you, you can't, can't do try that. and fend them off you can't reason with them you can't make it uh you know more trouble than it's worth right all you can do is get the f out of there or cut the guy's leg off or yeah and that's how you get the f out of there i guess so so video game decisions have no bearing on real life of course not is what you're saying of course not and i agree with that except for monetary wise on episode three 
Um, they, he said, in terms of absolute heartbreak in the episodes we've seen so far, number episode three called Long Road Ahead takes the crown. You're really going to have to have your morals tested right from the opening scenes of the episode. And since the bulk of people who play the game seem to make decisions based on what they would actually do in the situations presented to them, this episode is going to hold up a very dark mirror for a lot of people. And that was said by the marketing guy, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a mar- he's a marketing guy. He's got to tell us these important <laughs> I, facts. I really don't think that people are going to make their actual moral decisions in this. I think they're going to make their desired moral decisions. Well, this is the thing. I don't think taking the higher ground in a video game decision equates, like you said, taking the higher ground in a real life decision. Nor does taking the uh, the violence route either. Like stuff that the uh, what's anybody in any of the characters in Grand Theft Auto <laughs> stuff that they do, uh, you know, a getting a hooker, B, beating her up for the money afterwards, C, stealing a car and driving it through a bunch of people. Uh, you know, that's just, that's ten, the first 10 minutes of the game, right? right. Uh, I don't think anybody really does that in real life. Well, not a lot of people. Not a lot of people. Well, I'm sure it happens, but it's, uh, it's rare. Yes, thankfully. Yeah. So there you go. Um, that's the Telltale Walking Game. Staying with the video game theme for one more news story, The Walking Dead has a third game that has now launched, and this is a social game on Facebook. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So this comes from the AMC TV blog. The Walking Dead social game blends elements of strategy and survival horror to create a unique, tension-filled social gaming experience. Faced with an ever-present threat from man-eating zombies called walkers, As if they have to tell us that. (laughs) Players use combat, stealth, and trickery to stay alive and to complete missions in their quest to survive the apocalypse. Now, I have not tried this game yet. And to be quite honest, I don't know if I will. Yeah. Two reasons. One, I'm not a really big Facebook gamer because most Facebook games are just annoying and tedious with their requests of you to do things. And I don't want to be the creator of any annoying requests on other people's wall. Oh, I see. Yeah. And also, I heard it was really bad. <laughs> so the reviews have not been good of this this game. So I'm not sure there is much uh, pushing me towards trying it out. Yeah, I'm not much of a... I've never actually used any kind of Facebook app in any way. Are you sure? I'm sh- Well, I might have in the context of this show. Right. I might have done something at some point. But I've never succumbed to installing any kind of app and using it or clicking on anybody's request that has asked me to do anything in an app. Well, you're barely ever on the Facebook anyways. So. That's true. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. So you're not going to play it. I'm probably not going to play it. If there's anyone out there that's played it and really loves it or hates it, I think you should uh, give us a call or send us an email and let us know either what we're missing or, you know, what we should stay away from. Right. So uh, you can do that at one 483 zomb or TalkingDeadPodcast at gmail.com. I would like to hear what some people have to say about this game because you can't always just rely on what you hear from the official channels. No. Uh, all righty. So let's get off video games for a little while. That's, okay, a, that's no enough of games. that. Um, cakes. How, let's talk about cakes. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen a Walking Dead cake. Oh, good. So uh, if you're up for baking a fancy cake, I'd give it a try. Okay, at least there's that. How season two was going to start and a DVD deleted scene, which is coming up on the season two uh, DVD and Blu-ray, mm-hmm. which comes out on August 28th. That's soon. That is a week from tomorrow. 
Very soon. Very exciting. So in the uh, in the glacial or galactic sense of time, it's already happened. Yeah, exactly. It's an in uh, it, exactly. It, it's so <laughs> soon that it's happening right now. Happening right now. Um, so they put out a deleted scene, and you watch the video. I watched the video. Mm-hmm. It is essentially our group showing up back at the Vatos compound where mm-hmm. they were, uh, where they had their, um, their uh, like nursing home type thing going on. Yep, helping spoiler. the older people. Yeah, from season one. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that they're no longer there, and the place is full of zombies and so on. Um. So they have to basically fight off the zombies to escape. Did you notice? Uh, I didn't check. Did you, any of the members of the Vatos gang those uh, become zombies? You know, I didn't notice them as zombies, and none of them were living anymore, at least in that scene. So it looks like things fell apart there, and, and they either moved on or were overcome by zombies. But the whole idea here is that season two was supposed to originally, the original idea was that it would start right after season one finished. Right. So we'd pick up right after the CDC exploded and they'd be making their way down the road with the purpose of going to the the Vatos to try and seek shelter and maybe form a bigger group and right. be safe. But what happens is uh, Shane's Jeep breaks down, leaving him isolated from the group and he has to outrun a crowd of zombies and is eventually rescued by the group in the RV. And then after that is when they go to the Vatos. So this is the source of that footage that we saw in the trailer for right. season two <clears throat> that never made it into the show. And we now know what happened to the Jeep. That's right. The Jeep broke down and is gone. So he had, uh, Shane had to get a better car. That's right. And he sure did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that's all going to be on the DVD apparently. So... There's probably more deleted scenes and maybe more information about what was what could have been for season two. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I really have an opinion on whether I like. I can't really say whether this would have been better or not because we never really got to see it. Right. But um, I'm sort of glad that in a way we kind of pick up a little bit later. Um, you know, in the story, you know, we don't need to pick up right where it left off. No, I mean there's uh, it, there's a lot of precedence to start, uh, you know, new seasons, you know, immediately following the uh, the finale of the last season, right? So they were kind of kind of picking up on that. They want to tell the story. They want to tell parts of the story. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you know, I, I could have gone. I'm mean, like you. I could go either way. I don't know if it's better or not uh, to to do what they did, but they they did what they did. Uh, Maybe because of the performances in these scenes, and it's like, oh, it just didn't fit with the flow of the first episode. It was a little draggy in spots, and it just, you know, we needed to tighten it up. And uh, plus, as we all know, there was the whole Frank Darabont thing, and um, apparently, the foot some footage was unusable, and he was trying to fix it. And I guess they just decided to say, "Forget it, you're fired. We're going to try something different here." Right? Yeah. So that's ultimately what happened. And you know, I, I, I have a feeling. We ended up with something better than what we would have got, maybe. I hope so. Yeah. Who knows, though? Who knows? It, some of this info will be on the DVD, so when it comes out in a week, we'll I'll pick it up and see what's there. Sure. All righty. Filming has wrapped on the mid-season finale for season three. Hooray! They have done 
uh, the first eight episodes. I assume they're still editing and doing effects and things like that, but filming is done. Kirkman tweeted that news a couple of weeks ago, and he also tweeted a photo of the Woodbury Welcome Center. Oh, yeah? It's like the tourist welcome center for Woodbury. Yeah. Awesome. And he said that uh, filming is done. Now, most people are taking this to mean that the halfway point of season three leaves our characters in Woodbury because that's where they were filming um, at, when they were finished, when they wrapped. Well, I think it leaves some characters in Woodbury. It could be some. It could be just that they were filming Woodbury scenes on the last day. Who yeah. knows? And they don't film things in order either. No, of course like, not. They knew that this was going to wrap up in August and not air until October, so they could be filming the first scene on the last day of shooting, right? There's no way we can tell what's going on. There's no way, but the reason people are speculating that is because everyone can think of lots of great cliffhanger things that happen there that would be this, the end of the eighth episode, you know? Right. Um, I won't get into them, but there are a number of things that happen in Woodbury that you could end on and be like, oh my God, I can't wait to see what happens next. Right. Right? <clears throat> so that's that's kind of what they're thinking, but... Uh, I'm just happy to know that Woodbury has a welcome center so that when they take people in, whether they're prisoners or not, they can take them there and say, so, uh, you know, this is the way to the zoo. And if you want to go and see the waterfront, it's down here. We have a really nice festival of lights. Oh, during you're the looking for sushi? There. Okay, you go down here and right. you turn left at the lights. And then you go over two streets and you turn right at the old tree and there's a sushi place right on the corner. That's right. Don't trip over our solar panels and watch out for the undead. That's right. <laughs> so there you go. That's good to know. They're, they're done. I assume They'll be picking up filming the second half soon. Go past the half-buried zombie. Right. <laughs> Don't get grabbed by his arm. Yeah, stay out of reach. Stay beyond the ropes because he can he can reach almost to there. He can get you. <laughs> uh, all righty. Some comic book news now. Oh, yeah? The Walking Dead 100 sold a whole crap ton, hundreds <clears throat> of thousands of, of uh, issues. There were all sorts of variants on the cover. In fact, there's even one more that I think has come out since then, and boy, is it really nice. Nice. Uh, but I am here to talk about Walking Dead 101, 101, a variant on that comic called the Ghost Variant. Ooh. Now, I didn't find out about this until maybe a week ago, which may have been when the news broke. I don't know. Um, the official text on this, though, is this. A mysterious figure known as the Ghost has invited a small group of retailers to sell his Ghost Variant comics. No one knows who the ghost is, where the comics are coming from, or what the next ghost variant will be. The first ghost variant is a special cover of The Walking Dead number 101 featuring Michonne in a very 70s style art uh, with art by Jim Rugg. So if you haven't seen this cover, go and search for Walking Dead ghost variant and you will see it. It is very, very cool in my opinion. Okay, uh, just now, like, Four, 14 seconds ago is when uh, The Walking Dead got oversaturated for me. Really? That's it. it because of this? Right here on the air. This, yeah, this, uh, you know, I don't even know what to call it. Some kind of uh, clandestine marketing campaign uh, where this ghost is giving away ghost variant comics and, you know, yep. trying to build hype for whatever reason. That's it. It it just got oversaturated for me. Which is funny because all this is is an alternate cover. It's not a theme park or a zombie car or Yeah, but they're anything. building this whole thing around it, right? Trying to build hype around this simple little idea of uh, there's a new variant of a comic book cover and... Uh, and it's some, rare. Somebody's going to give it away. Wow. You know, somebody's going to walk down the street and give it away. Oh, my God, i got to find the guy. Where do I find the guy? 
It, maybe he's back in the seventies. Maybe he time traveled back to the seventies because that's where the cover comes from. Well, I can see your point, but I still think it's a pretty cool cover. I like the well, artwork. The cover's great. It's very, very different than the uh, anything else I've seen from the Walking Dead because it doesn't use any of the standard Walking Dead branding. The right. logo's not there. Um, it's just a totally different style than anything that you've seen on the Walking Dead so far. Yeah. Um, just this kind of thing. They did it with Lost. You remember when they did the uh, the real world thing with Lost where they tried to blur the lines between... The, the ARG for Lost. There's a couple of them, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of thing really kind of annoys me, right? Where they, But this is not that. I rec- recognize that this is not that. This is purely a you know underground marketing thing, right? right? They're trying to build hype in some kind of underground way of... You know, find this guy. Oh, I got the cover because I met this guy. And well, where did you meet him? Oh, he was on the corner. Blah 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 well, blah. Well, it's not. It's not that. It's that. It's that they ship these to retailers, but only select ones. And the official word is they don't know where it's coming from. I'm sure it's still coming from Image Comics. They own this. Well, yeah, of course thing. it is. But I just I see. You know, I have this vision of this uh, this guy with a backpack full of these comic books walking right. down the boulevard, <laughs> handing them out to <laughs> random people that he thinks might like uh, a comic books. B uh, you know, Walking Dead people. Well, I can see your point. I still really, really want one of these, though, because they're beautiful. Oh, if that guy would walk down this street, I'd be perfectly happy to take one. To I take just, one. You know, like I said, you, you think that they, there's a danger of uh, The Walking Dead being oversaturated in the market. Mm-hmm. I said they were right on the line. This just makes me feel like they just took their, their big toe and just went a little bit over that line. All right, a little bit over the line. Yeah. Well, who knows if this is the only time something like this is going to happen. Um, It probably isn't. They're probably going to continue to do alternate covers for all the issues, and I can't deny that I will continue to want them. Yeah. Because I just do. Uh, I've been looking on eBay for this sucker, and it is available out there. Sometimes they will or will not ship to Canada. Sometimes the shipping is very expensive and so on. I actually placed a couple of bids, but I have not won any of them because I'm not willing to willing to spend too much on it, right. but I would like to get one. It would be very cool. So uh, go check it out if you haven't, and uh, let us know what you think. Finally, in the news this week, we have an update on the Tony Moore versus Robert Kirkman lawsuit. Ooh. Now, if you recall, earlier <clears throat> this year, uh, Moore sued Kirkman because he felt he wasn't getting the financial compensation he should be for being the co-creator of this whole thing. Right. Um, And he has now filed a claim against Kirkman looking to be declared joint, to officially be declared, I guess, joint author of The Walking Dead and other collaborations between the two and for the commensurate share of the associated proceeds. Right. (laughs) I have a few quotes from the claim here that I'm going to read because they are awesome. Awesome. (laughs) From... Moore's claim. He says, Kirkman is a proud liar and fraudster who freely admits that he has no qualm about misrepresenting material facts in order to consummate business transactions. And it is precisely that illicit conduct which led to the present lawsuit and to Kirkman's business success, in quotes, generally. So that's those are some pretty strong words. Yeah, that doesn't sound too much like lawyer speak to me, but I guess it is. Well, I don't think it's – well, yeah, it doesn't sound like lawyer speak, but I think that's right out of Moore's mouth. <laughs> he is a proud liar and fraudster. <laughs> like, that's just not very nice. Yeah. But I guess it's how he feels. 
Um, he goes on, in September of 2005, approximately a month after the repudiation of Moore's co-authorship status, Kirkman was attempting to license television and theatrical rights to The Walking Dead. Kirkman and Kirkman LLC directly and through their agents told Moore that there was a pending, serious, attractive, promising deal uh, deal with the television network for The Walking Dead and that the deal was time-sensitive and in danger of being lost uh, if not conducted or concluded quickly, and that Kirkman would not be able to complete that deal unless Moore immediately assigned all of his interest in The Walking Dead and the other works to Kirkman. Right. We kind of knew this already, but that kind of lays it out there. Moore feels like that he was pressured into signing over his rights to this thing because uh, if he didn't, they'd lose the TV deal. No, it's just a matter of did he did he know that the TV deal was on the table when he signed over his rights? Or did Kirkman know about the TV deal and they said, yeah, get rid of him and, uh, you know, just sign here. Sign here. I'll give you whatever you want. Just sign here. Right. And he did. And then he went, oh, by the way, we have a TV deal. Yeah. I who I don't know. The feeling I get is that it was on the table and for whatever reason, um, somebody, you know, some TV executive decided that we can't have this be overly complicated with too many people involved. We you know, get rid of him or we're not doing this. Right. And, you know, Kirkman went to him and said, we're going to get screwed if, if we don't, if you don't sign this document. Yeah. Whether he told him that there was a TV deal on the table or not. Right. I, I think that would piss me off. Yeah. If somebody came and pressured me and said, I'll give you what looks like in a very attractive offer to sign over all your rights and you go, okay, fine, sign over the rights. And all of a sudden there's a frigging TV deal that gets signed. Well, that's the thing. It's like... But I think that he was using the TV deal to convince him to do this. Okay. I don't, I don't think he just went and said, sign it all over for no reason. And then, oh, now you don't get to be part of the TV deal. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Why would you sign that? Why would Moore sign that? Well, if he, that if he didn't know about it, he just thought, okay, yeah, fine. You're doing a comic. You know, I'll, uh, you know, there's the rights and I get so much money based on, you know, the next couple of years worth of comics. This is uh, the projected sale of the comic over the next five years. You get your percentage of it. This is, I'm just going to pay you out right now. Right. Well, okay. I, I sort of, I can sort of see that, but still. That's not dealing in good faith. Right? Well, no, it's not. If you have more information than you're letting on. That would piss me <laughs> off and I would sue. So Moore finishes with perhaps because of the animosity engendered by the filing of the state court action, Kirkman now baselessly denies that Moore jointly authored the works with him or with me. Well, yeah. So uh, they know they're no longer friends. Yeah. You know, it's it's lawyers, you know, shoot for the moon on the plaintiff's side. And the defendant says there's no way he did anything at all on right. the defense side, right? <laughs> That's right. So, you know, they got to meet in the middle somewhere. Exactly. Now, I don't claim to understand all of this lawyer stuff entirely. There's a lot to this. But from what I can take away after reading this document is that what this claim is is just an effort to officially have Moore declared joint author of this so that certain decisions can be therefore made in certain courts in the U.S. Apparently, state courts and federal courts will, um, you know, will deliberate different things. Right. And if – I think he has to be officially declared a joint author for this to go to federal court or something like that. Oh, I see. That's kind of what I took away from it. So – that's what this is. Otherwise, the rest of the lawsuit is essentially the same. Give me what I'm owed. <laughs> right. <laughs> what it comes down to. So there you go. Um, the legal system in the U.S. is complicated. 
Well, it's complicated here, too. Oh, I was going to say, the only thing more complicated than the U.S. system is the Canadian system. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's too bad these guys are fighting a court battle. Uh, Moore has requested a jury trial for this, which is which cool. is strange. Unusual, I think, for this kind of a, a claim. Well, it depends, right? But I don't know. If he wants... Uh you know, a jury trial might be good in his case because, you know, a judge is going to look at the evidence and, uh, you know, deliberate based on uh, what he sees in front of him and what the law states on what he can do based on that evidence. Mm-hmm. A jury full well can just go with their gut. And right. their gut is, shit, that uh, Kirkman guy, he's making a lot of money. And this guy helped out make this uh, this product that's making a hell of a lot of money. He should get some money for that, shouldn't he? Yeah, he will, exactly. You'd think that's maybe what the jury would be inclined to think but a lot can change in the course of a court proceedings yeah. a or, trial you know a jury might get also get tired and just go give us friggin money already we just want to go home and not have to eat another subway sandwich for lunch <laughs> so, sorry subway <laughs> i had subway sandwich for lunch myself and it was delicious very good this podcast brought to you by subway no i'm just kidding this podcast is brought to you by somebody though and we are going to take a short break to thank our sponsor when we come back we have our walking dead actor spotlight on Scott Wilson, so stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Listeners of The Talking Dead, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Jason, would you care to recommend a book this week I for sure the people? Do. I do. I uh, just finished a book called Kill Decision by Daniel Suarez, narrated by Jeff Gurner. It, uh, Daniel Suarez wrote uh, Freedom TM and, uh, oh, I forget the other name of the book, the first one in it, uh, Demon. And, oh, Demon. Yeah, Demon and Freedom TM was a sequel to Demon. So this one, Kill Decision, is about uh, autonomous flying drones making uh, their own decisions to attack and kill humans and and stuff without any uh, human in the loop. Really? Yeah, so... Uh, that sounds dangerous. Basically a uh, techno thriller about uh, drones coming and attacking humans and uh, taking the kill decision upon themselves. Sounds like the kind of situation where the phrase, what could possibly go wrong, applies. <laughs> uh, yeah, except that the, the drones were actually sent to do this instead of, uh, you know, they didn't just decide to kill humans on their own. Cool. So, yeah, and uh, as always, it comes in at 13 hours, 6 minutes. Wonderful. To download that or your free or any free audiobook from their 100,000 title catalog, go over to audibletrial.com slash talking dead. That is audibletrial.com slash talking dead to grab a free audiobook.
And we're back, and it is time for the Walking Dead actor spotlight on Mr. Scott Wilson. Mm-hmm. He, of course, plays Herschel on the show. Herschel Green. Herschel Green. He was introduced in season two. He has made it into season three. For now. For now. And I will quickly run down what we watched. We watched 1967's In Cold Blood, which was his second on-screen appearance, if I'm not mistaken. We watched Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, Junebug, a movie from 1980 called The Ninth Configuration, and an episode of Twilight Zone from 1985 called Quarantine. Fun stuff. So where should we start here, Jason? We could either go alphabetically, we could go in order of release, we could go in order of awesomeness, or we could just go in the order that it's on the paper here. Uh, Well, I think to be safe, we should go in the order in which it's on the paper, because if you go in the order of awesomeness, then where do we start? Because I don't know. We haven't talked about these at all. (laughs) I don't know where your your awesome rank is. And to be quite honest, I'd have to spend 10 minutes ranking them. (laughs) And we don't want that. In ascending or descending order of awesomeness. So let's just, they're in a list on the paper in front of me. It's actually a computer screen, then not actual paper, but we'll go in that order. All right. So in that case, we're going to start with 1967's In Cold Blood. Why don't you give us the information on this movie? All right. The IMD summary says, After a botched robbery results in the brutal murder of a rural family, two drifters elude police, in the end coming to terms with their own mortality and the repercussions of their vile atrocity. It is directed by Richard Brooks and stars Robert Blake, John Forsyth, and, of course, Scott Wilson as Dick. Mm-hmm. So we, for the first time, watched part of this movie together. We did. We haven't watched a uh, other actor spotlight together, I don't think. Yeah, I had to go to bed, so uh, <laughs> I, I stopped watching it. And I stayed up. <laughs> and watched some more and then went to bed yourself, I believe. That's right. Okay. And, and <clears throat> in a different bed than you. Of course. Um, so in Cold Blood, I... After watching half of it at your place yep. that evening, I came home the next day and started it over again and watched the whole movie again the next day. Oh, that's a good plan. Um, partly because, you know, when we were watching it, I'd had like four beers and I was tired and it was a little more difficult to pay attention at the time. Yeah, or- I went back a bunch too. Eh? When I watched, started watching it the next morning, I had coffee, I was awake, I uh, went back a you know, a full half hour or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so. I, just, I just felt that I needed to do that to give it a fair <laughs> shake. So I watched the whole thing, mm-hmm. and I got to say, I quite enjoyed it. I really liked this movie. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fine, fine, fine movie. And I wasn't so sure watching the first half at your house, half drunk and tired. Yeah. Because, as I said, it wasn't the best scenario for movie watching. No, and it was, it was, I was also unsure of what this movie was. Right. Right, when, you know... It, and say two drifters elude police and in the end come to terms with their own morality or mortality. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> One thing I noticed about this is that, and I've noticed this about a lot of movies made before the 70s, and that is that they tend, and this could just be me, they tend to spell things out for you a little bit more obviously. Right. You know, this movie... There's nothing ambiguous about it. There's nothing um, – you're not really left with any questions. Everything is right there on the screen, mm-hmm. and it's all explained to you very um, sort of straightforward. I noticed the same thing with the original Psycho, for example. Right. When the, when the main storyline of Psycho ends, there's sort of an epilogue on that movie where doctors and police are actually talking and explaining everything that made um, – uh, the the crazy guy's character Bates Bates is that his name Yeah Bates Motel Yeah but is that his name It's his name Bates. Okay so they're explaining what made Bates insane What's well, his last name is Bates Well I know that okay. 
but they're explaining it all to you. They're like they're like giving it all to the audience. Right. Where today, if a movie was made, you wouldn't necessarily have that. You're a little bit more might be left up to the audience. So it depends on the movie, of course. Yeah. But but that's the feeling I get, and I did get that feeling from this movie. Now in Psycho, it kind of bothered me, and I felt it took away a little bit because we didn't need that exposition at the end. Right. This movie, I didn't get that feeling at all. I felt like everything in the movie, despite it being two hours and fifteen minutes, was. Um, was was good and was valid and and should have been there. Right. So the first half of the movie is the actual events. Yep. Right. And the second half of the movie is kind of a retrospective of the events as well as uh, the repercussions of the events. Right? Exactly. And I thought that was really well structured. It was. Um, it it I found it a strange decision to not show the crime the first time through. I, I remember that. It's and like, well, what the hell happened? <laughs> it's like they drive up to the house that they're going to rob, and then they cut to something else happening after it's taken place. Right, the police showing up and seeing the, and seeing the crime scene. The investigation. Yeah. But they they show the the events of the, the crime later on in the movie in the form of a, of a flashback while one of the characters, Robert Blake's character, is kind of reflecting on what he's done. Right. But it was a really good movie. It I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Scott Wilson played kind of a funny character. He did. Uh, he was sort of a fast-talking, shit-talking guy who could convince anybody to do anything, sort of swindler, yeah. right? Yep. That's the feeling I got. Um, he was very young. He looked young. He, he doesn't look like Herschel at all. No. Well, he sounded like Herschel. He sounded like him, and that's interesting. He really had the same accent, same voice. Yeah. Some things never change, I guess. Yeah. This uh, this movie, once I started doing uh, doing a little reading on this movie, it even became more compelling for me. Because first of all, it's a true story uh-huh. uh, based on a book uh, by Truman Capote. That's and right. He reported on the uh, – well, he wanted to write a book on this after the event happened and before they caught the two guys. Right, like he showed up there and started, uh, you know, working on like talking to the police and all that kind of stuff, and then they caught the two guys, and then he kind of showed up. He started talking to to the two guys. He followed the trial, followed the. uh, Can we spoil it? We can spoil it. Nineteen sixty-seven. It's an old film, and it's and it's real life. So sure, they get hung at the end. They get executed. Right. So he 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 was there essentially. Yeah, I read that he he was much closer with um, Robert Blake's character. What what was the character's name? Um, Perry. 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 Yeah. He was much closer with Perry, and uh, although he was in, I think he was in the room for when Dick was hung, he couldn't stay for when Perry was hung because he was closer with him and he formed a friendship with him, yeah, I think. I couldn't deal with it. Now, uh, a couple of things that uh, also took me by surprise. The uh, the house where the family was murdered? Real house. That's the actual house that they were murdered. The pictures on the walls were the actual family of that was that was killed in the house. I know. That's cool. The, and uh, a little bit creepy. The uh, the poster has uh, two sets of eyes on it. It's the actual eyes of the two killers and not the actors that were playing them. Also creepy. Very, very creepy. So this, uh, the more I read about this, the more compelling it, it became and the more interesting of a story it was. And apparently the book was, uh, you know, it's not a fictional tale of what happened. It's true crime. Mm-hmm. And they say that this movie was basically a, a celluloid adaptation of the novel. Like it, right. it's... This is all real. the The jurors in the uh, in the courtroom, uh, four of the jurors were this were actual jurors, right from the actual trial. They tried to get the executioner, but they couldn't. But yeah. they couldn't because and they tried to get the judge. I read too. Yeah. yeah, crazy stuff. It's really, really quite an interesting story, and it made for a great movie. It was nominated for some Oscars. 
won a bunch of other awards. <clears throat> um, so I, I highly recommend this movie if you're uh, if you interested in crime stories at all. Yeah, one one uh, addendum crime story. Uh-huh. The, uh huh. The did you look into Robert Blake? At all, the guy who played Perry? Uh, I browsed his catalog, but not really. In 2001, he uh, went to... He married this woman in 2000 who was pregnant at the time, and he married her because she convinced him that it was her baby. Uh, She was also sleeping with... (laughs) Jeez. uh, Scott Wilson? uh, No, not Scott Wilson. uh, Marlon Brando's son, and told Marlon Brando's son that it was his baby. And so he married her... And she for, he forced her, once the baby was born, they did a DNA test and found out that it was actually Marlon Brando's son and not uh, uh, Blake's son. Right. And so in 2001, this was a year after he, he married her, they went out for dinner. Uh, they went for a nice dinner. He lived in, uh, in Studio City, which we've both been to in California. Yeah. And uh, they went out for dinner. And when they got back in the car, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to get, I forgot my gun at the table. So he had what? to go back to the restaurant to get his handgun because he forgot it at the table. While he was gone, somebody got into the car and shot the woman in the back of the head. What? Killed her, shot her in the back of the head. He was charged with murder, even though witnesses saw him get back and uh, come back for the actual gun that he left in the table. It was a different caliber. What? They charged him with murder, and the, uh, they charged him a, a while after, like 2006 is when they charged him. She was killed in 2001 because a couple of stuntmen that played him in various movies came forward and said, he tried to hire me to kill his wife. Is he in jail now? He is not in jail. He was acquitted of the actual crime because they couldn't uh, prove that he pulled the trigger or any cash transaction happened, right? Someone needs to make a movie of this. Uh, but the family... Of uh, of the woman that he killed, uh, basically the same thing happened to OJ. They charged him with wrongful death, and they won and basically bankrupted him completely. Right, and uh, he tried to get back into acting, but every time he uh, went for an interview, they would ask him about the crime, and he'd get pissed off, and he'd storm out of the interview, and all that kind of stuff. Oh my god! She was a uh, she was known for uh, basically as a grifter trying to. Uh, get money out of rich actors. It was his second marriage. It was her 10th marriage. (laughs) That's too many. Yeah. So Robert Blake, the guy who played Perry in this movie, uh, he's he's, had a troubled life. He's had a, well, not really of his own fault though. I I don't know if he hired somebody to kill her. Okay. That's that's his own damn fault. That's, that's true. That is not cool. And uh, then you don't need to take handguns to restaurants. People, (laughs) You just don't. I forgot my handgun at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. I got to go back and get it. That was 2001. Like, what the hell? Yeah, seriously. And, and, and the shooting was just a random thing? Well, apparently, that's what, uh, that's what his defense was. It was right. just like uh, random or somebody tried to rob her. I wasn't, wasn't there. I don't so know So bizarre. Happened. So bizarre. Yeah, so that's a true crime <clears throat> addendum. True crime about true crime. Yeah, wow. Weird. All right. So In Cold Blood's really good. Scott Wilson is, is hilarious in it. And... Uh, Check him out because he's really, really young. Oh yeah, it's oh, really, he, really fun he, to watch. He plays uh, his character is great, and you can you can hear Herschel in that voice. Yeah, for sure. All right, next on the list, Behind the Mask: The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This is directed by Scott Glosserman, starring Nathan Bessel, Angela Gothals, and Scott Wilson as Eugene. Eugene. Uh, the IMDb summary for this one is the next great psycho horror slasher has given a documentary crew exclusive access to his life as he plans his reign of terror over the sleepy town of Glen Echo. Nice. <clears throat> um, Scott Wilson 
in so this is sort of a documentary style movie, and Scott Wilson plays an older, now retired uh, former psycho killer, slasher, slasher, right. And um, the main character, who the camera crew is following around, following around, he's you know he's giving his um, methods of things and explaining how things are done and and how he takes influences from all these other people. And it's a really really fascinating and funny and entertaining sort of look at the tropes that go into these types of movies. Oh right? yeah, that was great. It's a it's a breakdown of of all these movies. Friday the Thirteenth. Um, uh, Michael Myers. What was he in? What were the movies he was from? Uh, Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. So it, you take all these and you kind of look at the commonalities and the tropes, and this movie is just examining it. Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, I yeah. think even the Chucky movies. Yeah. Were similar. And the scenes with Scott Wilson in this movie are fantastic. They go over to his house. He's there with his wife, and they're talking about these. Um, the things that he did as, as, as a younger man and the things that this new guy is going to do and the way they do it. And they're just talking about it casually and nonchalantly and, and like it's the most regular thing in the world. Like, you know, he, he was an insurance salesman and, and, and it's just the way he did it, you know? Right. Yeah. So well done. So well done. I really, really enjoyed this movie and I thought uh, Scott Wilson was really good in it, in a supporting role like yeah, this. it was a great movie. Um, the thing about this, the that I thought was a little bit strange is that at a certain point of the movie towards the end, it actually abandons the documentary style right. and becomes <clears throat> a standard slasher horror movie. Well, they got to show you the tropes. They can't just describe them to you, right? That's what they were doing. They yeah. were showing them to you after describing them. And, and so it's sort of like, here's what they are and now how, here's how they work. Right. And it was good, but I found it slightly jarring. I didn't expect it to go. Really? I didn't expect it to go from handheld, like single camera, to multi camera shoot. Right. I remember when it. Uh, now, full disclosure, I haven't seen this in a while. It's been uh, actually a few years since I've <clears> seen this movie. Uh, but I remember that uh, that there was that transition from documentary or mockumentary to uh, actual slasher film. Yeah. And I just thought it was delightful. I right. thought it was like a, a key change in a song that just kind of takes you that one step further. It's like, it's the same song, but it's just in a different key. Right? Yeah, it's a different perspective on the same thing, right? It's sort of an analysis of it, but then you see it play out. Yeah. And it was really good, and I, I highly recommend this movie to, to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good. Scott Wilson is, is much older in this. He's much closer to Herschel style in this, and he doesn't quite have as much of the Southern accent in it, I don't think. Right. But he's he's really good. I saw this at the uh, the Toronto After Dark Film Festival. Yeah, like four years ago or something. Yeah, it was a while ago. But it, uh, I just I, I love the After Dark Film Festival. Absolutely love yeah. it. It's uh, coming up in October. Not too far away. Not too far away. If you're in in within driving range of Toronto, I highly recommend it. If you're into this sort Absolutely. of stuff. So yep. Toronto After Dark, go check it out. Um, all right, next June Bug. Set this one up. Junebug, director, directed by Phil Morrison. IMDb summary is a dealer in outsider art travels from Chicago to North Carolina to meet her new in-laws, challenging the equi equilibrium of this middle-class southern home, uh, starring uh -oh, M. Beth Davids, uh, Amy Adams, Alessandro Nivola, and Scott Wilson as 
Eugene. Once again. Yeah. He, he's uh, funny because he played Eugene in this. He played Eugene in The Rise of Leslie Vernon. His middle name in, in Cold Blood was Eugene. Mm-hmm. Um, they mention his full middle name, full name at the end of that movie, and it's Eugene. Yep. And mm-hmm. I forgot to mention they're they're working on a sequel to Behind the Mask, I believe Ooh. called Before TM, which means Before the Mask. <laughs> and he'll be playing Eugene in that again. Oh, great! So he he's got a thing with Eugene. If I ever sure talk does. to him, I'm going to ask him about that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so June Bug, this movie was okay. It didn't do a lot for me. Um, I really liked the beginning, but the movie kind of took a left turn. Uh, three quarters of the way through. The thing about what I liked about this movie was was Amy Adams. I think she was very good in it, and it's the kind of performance that could have become annoying as it went on because of her sort of personality and yeah. her her ultra ultra sort of immature but happy character. She was type. just absolutely delighted and bewildered by the world, by everything yeah. exactly, and that just shows sort of a. It shows a fancy-free kind of immaturity, I think. But she wasn't immature. She recognized the faults in others, and she knew that there were problems and that her husband was not really, uh, you know, engaged in their marriage. <laughs> no, and that she he was, was hoping not. that the birth of her child would, would you know, have him, you know, he'll change when, uh, when, the ba- when he sees the baby, that yeah. kind of stuff. She, yeah. she, she was aware of the world. She just was delighted by everything that, uh, that happened around her, I think. She was. Well, and I think she was mostly delighted by the promise of something – Something new happening in this family. These new city people coming, and uh, you know her um, her brother in law, I guess, bringing his new wife to yeah. visit them. And for the first time, and she's like, "Oh, this is the greatest thing ever!" And it's just something different coming into this this house, this home. You know? Yeah. So she was really, really into it in that respect. But I thought her performance was really great. In the oh, movie. she was uh, she was by far the, uh, the the best thing about this. Movie. And and particularly towards the end, which I won't give away. But she she. You know, the movie took a turn, had to deal with some stuff, and she handled it very well, her character and, you know, the actress. I think that the, uh, you know, the the setup of her character in the first half of the movie, or first three quarters of the movie, was this, you know, delight and bewilderment and happiness that that was underlying her character uh, with, you know, a sense of being able to deal with reality. And then the left turn that takes place later on in the movie was the fruition of that character, right? It was like, oh, crap. You you feel the the downfall of that character uh, in that in a part of the movie, but you also see the ability to deal with reality there as well yeah. coming out. So yeah, I, absolutely. I, yeah, there was, uh, you know, her character, sure, the movie kind of took a left turn and it was not the uh, delightful romp through uh, Southern America quirkiness that uh, that I was hoping the whole thing would be, but uh, I, I really liked this movie. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was okay. It just didn't really strike me all that all that amazingly. Now Scott Wilson plays the father. Yep. In this, Amy uh, Adams's father, and father-in-law. Uh, uh, father-in-law. Sorry, yeah, right? Yeah. Father-in-law, and he's he just his character struck me as a guy who was just. Stay quiet. Yep. Don't say much. You know, I live in this family, but they got all their issues. I'm just not going to get involved. Or he's just been sort of worn down over years and years of of or a little bit of both wackiness. Right? Yeah. yeah, he's got his uh, he's got a little corner in the basement that he retreats to and to do woodworking. To yeah. do woodworking that we never see. We see he carves something, uh, but uh, he, he carves something at the very end. Yeah, but uh, the family I thought was very quirky, real. Like mm-hmm. everybody had their little quirkiness, and uh, you know Scott Wilson, um, 
he plays this father that just kind of disattends the family when things go wrong, and then the uh, the son shows up with his new wife, and the first thing he does is completely disappear and abandons his wife to com- get to know his family. Right, like he's not there at all. He's wandering around the yard. He's like looking into things. He's not doing anything. I just thought that that those two characters, father and son, were doing the exact same thing. I just thought that was wonderful. No, it was really well conceived. They... And, and even the other son, that was uh, all he wanted to do was read the paper. Yeah, and he, he just kept covering his ears. Just leave me the f alone. I want to read the paper, and that's it. And so the men in that family were just gone, totally gone, totally. And 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 Amy Adams was the opposite, right? Even though she wasn't blood related to them, but yeah, yeah. no, it was. It, I did enjoy that about it for sure. Um, and Beth Davids, uh, I know recently from Californication. She played Dean Koontz's wife right. on that show. Yeah, <laughs> um, and she was good. She was great. She was very good. I thought she was good. I thought she was good in Californication too. I thought she was. Yeah, that's true. She was good in the British thing. <laughs> I like her. Yeah. Um, so this is another movie. I uh, I thought it was okay. Um, and Scott Wilson, he you know he didn't have a lot to do, but his character played an important role. Right. Just as in the in the dynamic of this family, so I say check it out. You know, it helps that I knew somebody like Amy Adams. Like, not in high school, but shortly after high school. Pregnant and bubbly all the she, time? She was bubbly. She wasn't pregnant at the time. Uh, but she's just had that, uh, you know, delight of everything. Wanted to know everything. Wanted to, you know, find out what's going on, what you were doing. What you know, Just was interested and delighted by absolutely everything. Good. And she found, uh, you know, her husband now. She has two kids. And he's just a wonderful, sweet guy. Well, there you like, go. So it works out sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it does. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately for uh, Junebug, it didn't work out. But uh, for my friend from high school, uh, it's working out. I, I did. Yeah. I, I really don't want to give away what happens in the end of this movie. But I did like the final scene between uh, Amy Adams and her uh, her husband when they were talking on the phone. Yeah. I did like what happened there. So yeah, that was fun. Go find out what happened, I say. Yeah. Watch this movie. It was a good movie. All right. I liked it more than you did, obviously. Yeah, a little bit more. Still think it was a good movie, though. Yeah. Uh, all right. The Ninth Configuration. Is it my turn? It is. I think so. Directed by William Peter Blatty, starring Stacey Keach and Scott Wilson as Captain Billy Cutshaw. IMDb has this to say. A new commanding officer arrives at a remote castle serving as an insane asylum for crazy and AWOL U.S. Army soldiers where he attempts to rehabilitate them by allowing them to live out their crazy fantasies while combating his own long-suppressed insanity. Now, if that description doesn't make you want to watch this movie, I don't know what will. Yeah, you should go watch this movie. <laughs> All right, what do you start? What do you think of this one? I thought, it was, uh, I thought it was very entertaining. It was kind of a little over-the-top entertaining, but uh, I thought it was a uh, delightful romp through playful craziness. This, was, this movie, most of it was absolutely batshit crazy yes and ridiculous crazy ridiculous crazy to me this may not this i don't know that you may not feel this way but this movie parts at parts of it i got a monty python vibe from it it was yeah it was it all was uh it didn't seem like it was uh insane asylum with people that are truly suffering because when you if you go to insane asylum especially if in the movies that want to be ultra real it's you know, human suffering at its greatest. Right. right. This was not that. This was guys with props. Yeah, exactly. This was like a bunch of comedians in a an old castle. <laughs> yeah. They're driving around in motorcycles. They're getting dressed up in costumes. I think that somebody had a sword. One guy is doing Shakespeare plays with dogs. Yeah, yeah he adapted uh, Macbeth for dogs. Or <laughs> for dogs, exactly. <laughs> and 
and I got oh, this Hamlet, mo- Hamlet, sorry. Uh, yeah, they might have made reference to a couple of plays. I don't know. But I got a vibe. I got the Monty Python vibe a bit. Now, it could have been the old castle, right? Because they take place in the States. Uh, yeah, it's a giant old castle in the northwestern states, apparently, yeah. right? <laughs> but uh, also, just the way they acted and the way they were all goofy all the time and, and all the stuff that was going on, I just got a little bit of Monty Python out of it. Now, um, not throughout, but. Uh, so Scott Wilson plays Billy Cutshaw, and he is sort of probably the most prominent member of the asylum. Right. He is a uh, astronaut, right? He was a yeah. former astronaut. Yeah, that who, panicked. Who went, that panicked, that's right. Yeah. And so now he's here. <laughs> right, because he's crazy, obviously, if he panicked. <laughs> of course. He's going to go rocking into space on a giant rocket, and he panicked, and now he's crazy. Right. Um, I did like this movie. Although, I did, too. Although, it, uh, although I had trouble with reconciling the sort of extreme wackiness of it and sort of the more serious tones of this this guy trying to deal with his actual insanity. Right. This new commanding officer. Yeah, I mean, it was wacky, but I thought it was overly wacky and contrived wacky. Like, it wasn't... that The whole, you know, prop comic uh, insane asylum thing kind of got to me after a while. Like, there's no way they would give somebody in an insane asylum a sword, right? Well, no. I guess no. I, I guess not. Yeah, <laughs> and I, even the uh, the first scene where they're uh, with the uh, with in the insane asylum where they like, line them all up to talk to them, uh, right? So they all get into rank and file. Yes, they're all soldiers, but there's no way you'd be able to get an insane asylum full of people to line up in rank and file in order to tell them what's going on. Right. No, of course, because they're insane. Yeah. And the other thing is, but like funny stuff was happening all around while while they were trying to do this, right? Like, you know. A guy walks up to the new commanding officer, and you think he's like the doctor presiding over all of this, but it turns out he's he is one of the inmates who's stolen the doctor's pants and coat and put it on, <laughs> and he's pretending to be the doctor. Right. That's funny. I thought it was really it funny. funny. It's a comedy, kind of a weird, it, uh, you know, cross-genre movie. Yeah, right? exactly. So I made a bunch of notes about it here on my phone while I was watching it. I'm just going to read some of these. Sure. So... Um, an inmate posing as the doctor says, that's the guy we were just talking about. He says, these guys are nuttier than a wagon load of pralines. <laughs> <laughs> Again, funny. Nice. Um, at the beginning, I thought Scott Wilson looked like the Mad Hatter. Because he had a wacky, yeah, he had mad that big hat, like, again, hatter on. Props. Yeah. I don't know why they would have a costume department in an asylum. A patient at one point tells somebody to quit drinking buttermilk daiquiris in the closet. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it's funny. Uh, there's the guy doing Shakespeare plays with dogs, we mentioned. Um, uh, just when I thought the movie was getting too wacky, it does something to draw me back in. Um, oh, that's 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 giving away a big spoiler. I'm not going to say that one. Um, there's a bar scene in this movie that is kind of a, kind of felt a little weird and out of place in this film because of what transpires. But at the beginning of the bar scene, there's a guy drinking a pitcher of beer with a straw. Yep. Like a straw in the pitcher, yep. not even in a glass. The bar scene struck me as a bunch of uh, Broadway bikers. Like they were they were bikers, but they were dressed up like they were in a Broadway play. They had eyeliner. Yes. They had their hair all teased. Well, and they behaved like it too, even the way they fought. It was like... It was like a choreographed dance fight. Yeah. And then at one point, the main sort of biker dude has to go to talk to the guy on the floor. And instead of crouching, he does the split slowly down <laughs> so he could be down at his level. Yeah, it was definitely Broadway bikers. <laughs> it was so weird. Um, there was a Wilhelm scream in this yep. movie. I don't know if you caught that. And 
at one point, a car pulls up to the insane asylum from Nassau, yeah. and I noticed that the license plate on the front said Nassau. Yeah, I saw that. And the license plate on the back said Nassau. <laughs> well, they needed to establish that he was no longer crazy, and <laughs> right. that he was returning as uh, a, a Nassau astronaut. Yes, but I'm pretty sure... I don't know. Maybe they had, you know, maybe they have like uh, a whole fleet of cars that have like NASA, NASA one. So this was this was the original. This was the real one. They gave him the car and driver of the, uh, you know, the the big NASA car. I guess so. So so I made a couple of notes too that I (laughs) wanted to see. So yeah, basically, uh, where did they get all the props? You know, they must have a whole bunch of rooms full of props down there. Yep. Uh, One of the uh, one of the lines that Scott Wilson said. I actually remember some of these lines from my childhood. I remember my mom. So you've seen this movie. I don't know if I have. I think my mom referenced this movie, and she was laughing about it, uh, you know, the, the fact that this was kind of wacky crazy. This is one of the lines that uh, that she liked. And I and once, he, once Scott Wilson said it, he said uh, he was talking about, I don't want to go back to my room, uh, you know, because uh, powerful drugs can be insinuated into my soup. Right. <laughs> right? So it's just kind of a silly line. And I remember my mom mentioning that in the early 80s. And so I did a search. I thought that that line was from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm, I don't think so. No, it, it mm. isn't. Well, I couldn't find it because I looked up the script of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that was adapted from the actual uh, movie. Uh-huh. It wasn't the original script because they change as, as they film them. Right. But, uh, you know, I did a bunch of searches on this and uh, no, that's not in there. So... This is, you know, my mom saying this. Another one is uh, Scott Wilson's talking about, uh, you know, he sees God as a giant foot, right? It's this right. big foot stomping down on people. And then they go to church and he gets in the car and he says, uh, would foot care what I'm wearing? <laughs> I missed that, but that's funny. <laughs> it is funny. So he refers to God as foot. I was funny. wondering if he cared right. what he was wearing. <laughs> that's that's good. Um, there were some interesting uh, conversations here about the existence of God between Scott Wilson and Stacy Keach. Yeah. Um, and and just before we move on, Stacy Keach gives probably the most reserved, stone faced performance I have ever seen. That yep. guy's voice has no dynamic range to it. It is always the same, pretty much level, monotone. His facial expression never changed, even when some crazy stuff was happening. He was just always exactly the same. It was kind of a weird performance. It but was, but I thought it was entirely within his character to do exactly what he did. I think I think you're right. I mean, part of it was, I, I, I don't know, maybe part of it was just trying to be the same for all the different levels of crazy that he encountered in there. Right. But then you find out some other things. So, And there was also a vision of uh, Scott Wilson on the moon, and there were giant crystals. Did you see that? Yeah, there, there I forgot crystals. about that. I'm like, wow, there's crystals on the moon. Crystals That's awesome. on the moon. Of course there are. Okay, yeah. finally, set up our last thing here, Jason. Uh, hold on a sec. I got one more note. Oh, sorry, one, one, one more note. When uh, there's one crazy guy who keeps trying, keeps trying to walk through walls. Right, right. He thinks he, he can phase through. He thinks walls. he can phase through walls, but the atoms are, you know, they're being mean, and they won't let him through the wall. So he has a sledgehammer, and he's beating up the atoms. Right, right. I'll teach those fuckers. Right, <laughs> you know, why they would give somebody in the insane asylum a sledgehammer? I really don't know. Really makes no sense. But later on, he is in, uh, he's in a, a frogman suit, like he's wearing a complete scuba gear. Yes, and he's in the water, and he says, "Atoms and water have manners." <laughs> They'll let him through. <laughs> See, this is good Where stuff. Where you got a frogman suit, I don't know. But uh, at least he can walk through water. He walks into the office in the frogman suit, right? Oh, I don't recall that. Yeah, I think he comes right in to, 
tell him that. In no, the, he's in, in the, the water f- when he says that line, but he may come into the office later. I think he comes into the office with the flippers on and everything. It's It felt sort of weird to me. Good fun, good fun. Funny stuff. All right, so Twilight Zone, Season 1, Episode 17 of the 1985 version. Uh, Quarantine. Uh, director is uh, Martha Coolidge. Uh, starring Tess Harper, D.W. Blown, and Scott Wilson as... Brown. Brown. That's B-R-O-W-N. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Maybe I need glasses. You may. Uh, uh, <laughs> Scott Wilson as Matthew Foreman. Did I get that one right? You did. All right. See, so IMDb says, a weapons engineer is awakened from suspended animation to deal with the imminent threat from space. An imminent threat, not the imminent threat. Well, it is the imminent <laughs> well, threat. I, I guess threat. it is, yeah. Uh, so I think we may have actually gone in order of awesomeness here because this, this Twilight Zone was pretty bad. Don't well, you agree? Well, the special effects were 1985 they you know, were, television crappy. The, well, they were pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, the concept of the thing may have been okay, but the execution wasn't very good. The line, the writing was not very good. No. Um, that's the nature the, of the Twilight the, Zone, right? Oh, you come take on. an idea and you, has, you, know, you smatter it around for 20 minutes and then you, uh, you have voiceover afterwards saying. But there are some very, very exceptional episodes of the Twilight Zone in all its forms. Yeah. I don't see this as one of them. Really? No. Uh, so Scott Wilson has woken up from his suspended animation because something is plummeting towards the planet, and he is the only person after... 300 years. Was it 300 years? He's the only person after 300 years who would have the skills and knowledge and ability to build something to shoot this out of the sky. Well, they figured the satellites in space. So humanity is, there was a giant uh, nuclear explosion. I'm just going to spoil the hell out of this thing. Giant nuclear explosion. Uh, Humanity is mostly dead. Uh, The humans that are left have developed mental, uh, some kind of mental technology, like genetic technology in order to control things mentally. Mental, some sort of, not really, well, telepathy, I guess. But yeah, Yeah. they can like reach inside you and do surgery with their bare hands. Psychic surgery, uh, you know, what do you call it? Not, uh, you know, Tele- telecommunications so they can talk to each other, that kind of stuff. They can mental projection so that they can right. actually project their consciousnesses out to see things that aren't uh, you know directly in front of them, that kind of stuff. So where was I going with this? Oh, so there was uh, they woke him up because there's something's hurtling towards them in space, and they think that the only way to uh, get rid of this thing is for the weapons that are in space on satellites to shoot it down, but they don't know how to communicate with the satellites. Right. So they wake up Scott Wilson and say, hey, you need to tell the satellites to shoot this thing down. They're floating around the planet doing nothing yeah. because they have no way to to uh, interact with them. But he's smart enough. He's from the old times. Which is you'd uh, be able to do that. 2023 <clears throat> or 2035 or whatever it was. Yeah. And they put together a computer system. Oh, that boy. That was funny with like a cathode ray tr- tube and like <laughs> DOS. And <laughs> wow. It was awesome. They had some ancient technology considering oh, it was 2025. The future ain't what it used to be, my friend. <laughs> no, that is for sure. Here's what I think about this. I think... The idea is good. The twist is okay. I, I, to be honest, didn't see the twist coming here. Um, and I think it's. I think the concept of how you fit into society after waking up in suspended animation for three hundred years is actually a more interesting idea yeah. than what they were going than what this sort of plot was here. Right. Right. It's 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 the um, it's the Futurama concept. And I think Futurama does it better than this Twilight Zone did. Yeah. You know, you wake up after a thousand years, how do you reintegrate into society? Now, that's 
not really what they were going for here, but they did kind of touch on it with him not being able to identify with these people and not understanding the powers that they have. I'm going to go back and rewatch all of Futurama. Futurama's a great show. I love Futurama. He's a delivery boy, and he wakes up a thousand years later, and there's a a supercomputer that pricks his blood and determines uh, what his ideal uh, (laughs) profession profession should be, and they come up with delivery boy. That's right. (laughs) He should feel good about that. It means he achieved everything in life that he was meant to. (laughs) Anyhow, this Twilight Zone, I had trouble getting past the bad writing, bad acting, and bad effects. The concept, fine. Yeah. But it was a it was it was a good idea wasted on crappy execution. Well, it seemed awkward to me the whole the whole time. It didn't seem like it was executed very well. I kinda liked the concept and uh, you know, for nineteen eighty five uh, you know right. low How- budget television, because the Twilight Zone in the eighties was not pumped to the extreme that Dallas was, for example. <laughs> or The Love Boat. Or The Love Boat. People did not watch this show in the droves that watched uh, primetime television. Was The Love Boat in the 80s? Or earlier? Oh, it was the 80s, I'm okay, sure. Okay, I'm not but, sure. Uh, I'm not sure when in the 80s. But I, I, So it was low budget, you know, low audience numbers, that kind of stuff. And this was uh, this season one, right? So they're kind of, you know, getting their feet, that kind of thing. So uh, for that, you know, taking that into account, I and I did at the time when I was watching it on Friday... Uh, I thought that it was you know, mostly well done. And I'm not the aficionado of a Twilight Zone that you are. Right. Uh, so I tried watching the original series, the box set that you have. I tried watching the whole thing. I think we got like six episodes in. Really? kind of gave up. Oh, my God. I, I can watch those over and over again. I love them. Yeah. So, okay. It wasn't this disappointment to me as it would be to you. I guess so, yeah. This was this was a disappointment to me. I didn't even think Scott Wilson was all that good, to be quite honest. I mean, he didn't have a lot to work with here, yeah. but he still didn't bring much to it. I can't remember. Did he have the southern accent in this? I don't think so. I don't recall. I think maybe he got rid of it for this. And now in this one, he was sort of middle-aged. He yeah. wasn't as young as he was in, 60, in the late 60s, and he wasn't old like Herschel. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's probably like our age right now. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. All righty. Well, that is our our extended Walking Dead actor spotlight on Scott Wilson. He's got such a uh, extensive body of work that you know we had a lot to choose from. And I think we, I think two things. One, this was probably the best collection of stuff we've watched for anybody. I think it was the most enjoyable. The most enjoyable. It, like all these movies except for maybe the Twilight Zone, had their own, had a lot of good about them. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's enough left that we could do a whole nother one on Scott Wilson and, and not repeat ourselves. Maybe some other time. Maybe some other time, not right now. Right now, we're going to do a little bit of this. Listener feedback. All righty. So we got an email from Claudia in the UK. Claudia. And a few other people, actually, who, who wrote this in. Just letting us know how the last letter of the alphabet is pronounced in the UK, because that's something we were wondering about last week. She says, I just listened to your last podcast. I am from the UK, and the letter Z is pronounced like you in Canada, Z. In school, it is forbidden to say Z as it is American, but we pronounce lieutenant like the Americans. Really? Which would be lieutenant instead of lieutenant. Now, the thing about this is I went and looked that up, and apparently lieutenant is... Uh, traditionally the British and Commonwealth pronunciation. Lieutenant? Lieutenant, and lieutenant is the the American. I am all on board with the American in this case, because lieutenant is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I don't think it's right. The, the word there's, the word is lieutenant. Look at it. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it, right it, there. It, it's in it, front of it you. It looks like it's lieutenant, but uh, you know, who, English has enough examples of things that do not are not pronounced like they're spelt. Well, and this is my problem. English has enough wacky words. We don't need to add more to it unnecessarily. Well, maybe we should just uh, completely switch over to Esperanto. It was supposed to be the end-all be-all for uh, for languages. Everybody in the world learns Esperanto because it makes perfect grammatical sense every time, and all the words are pronounced exactly like they're spelt. It will be easy for everyone to learn, and it'll be the language of trade the world over. Well, it didn't really end up that way. No, and I want flying cars and a jetpack too, but what yeah. are you going to do? What are you going to do? So thank you, Claudia, and everyone who wrote in about that. I now know... Uh, Keith from the internet wrote in to clarify Marvel's no prize, something else I couldn't remember last week. Mm -hmm. He said, I listened to number 84 and I heard that the no prize was mentioned and there was some question as to what it was. To get the Marvel no prize, one had to read any Marvel comic book and find some inconsistency, be it artwork or some bit of story or trivia and point it out. The no pri- uh, to receive your no prize, you had to explain it away. For example, in number 423 of Amazing Spider-Man, Peter Parker couldn't hang on to the window outside the Trident building and started to slide. But in number 430, he was clearly able to stay stuck to the windows outside of J. Jonah Jameson's office to eavesdrop. Uh, what more than likely happened was that the Trident building's windows were covered with some weatherproofing substance that Peter's spider powers could latch onto, but since we all know that JJJ is a cheapskate, he never had the coating put on the windows, therefore Spider-Man could hang on. Right. That kind of thing. And that's exactly what it was like uh, back in the day when I was reading Marvel Comics. Right. Uh, Keith continues, upon publication, the recipient would get a piece of paper printed with, congratulations, you won the fabulous Marvel No Prize, and have it signed by Stan Lee. Granted, this was before the fanboy phenomenon peaked and eBay was on the scene, so the prize was worth nothing more than the paper it was printed on, hence the No Prize. Oh, but now, anything signed by Stan Lee, especially... A no prize that you say be worth a fortune now. Probably worth a fortune. The only thing I don't understand here is my recollection of this is that you would write in with your um, your your inconsistency, yeah. and I always sort of thought that no one was ever actually awarded the no prize because the the authors or the person responding to the letters would always have some sort of response explaining it. Right. Uh, that was either better than yours or in <laughs> place of yours. And I always got the feeling that the no prize didn't actually exist. It was just this thing that people tried to write in for and no right. one ever got. But according to Keith, there was a real thing. So who knows? Hmm. Good times. Maybe they always you know, <clears throat> sent the no prize with an explanation. Therefore, you got no prize. And here it is. And here it is. Got no prize. <clears throat> All righty. We're going to go to an email from Paul on the Isle of Man. How cool is it that Paul lives on the Isle of Man? That is cool. Now, I'm not going to say that if you live in an exotic location such as that, your letter or your email is more likely to be read on the podcast, but it can't hurt. Well, you know, exotic (laughs) location, you know, some people may consider Toronto an exotic location because it's so far across the world and, oh, my God, it's it's full of Canadians. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I don't know. To me, the Isle of Man is a pretty exotic location. Yeah, it's so, me too. So, Paul, that is very cool. I mean, look at the flag, for crying out loud. It's three legs running. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Take a look. Go look it up on Wikipedia. Maybe later. Here, I'll just uh, turn my computer here. That's the flag. Wow, that is a cool flag. <laughs> okay, if you have a cool flag, you're getting on the air. All righty. So, Paul writes, 
about Laurie having a baby on the show, which is something we've talked about. He says, my opinion is that having a baby in The Walking Dead would be problematic. It would see scenes similar to those in the final episode of MASH where Hawkeye told the lady to keep the damn chicken quiet, and it turned out that he told the lady to keep the damn baby quiet in order to not give their position away. Having a crying child in the show would make writing the storyline for the show too difficult, so you'd expect them to write the baby out. But if they decided to keep the baby in the storyline and it doesn't cry, then that wouldn't be realistic either, and it would be detrimental to the show. Babies cry. Babies cry. Babies are loud. They need diapers. They, you know, need all kinds of stuff. So um, I am in agreement that having a baby on the show would just introduce too many unrealistic elements. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't make sense. I completely agree with that. And uh, and it would bother me if, if the baby was there. Humans are not <laughs> meant uh, to be the kind of like, to, uh, they're not meant to dodge prey like other animals are, right? Like babies cry. Yeah. Right. Whereas um, uh, deer, for example, I think now I'm just kind of, sort of talking from a half memory here, but uh, talking out of your ass, deer mothers are not attuned to the cry of their children. Like they they can't tell the cry of their children apart because that's not the way they work. The idea is that uh, young deer hide and they recognize the cry of their mother, so the oh. mother cries to say, "Come out now." Right, it's Where safe now. If you, if uh, the baby doesn't hear anything, it just sits in the bushes and hides and shuts the hell up. Mm-hmm. Right? Where humans don't do that, obviously. Humans work the other way. Babies cry. Yeah. And having a crying baby where uh, humans are the prey and uh, are trying to hide and be quiet mm-hmm. is a very difficult thing to overcome. You know, I can I can totally understand the um, the potential here for making it even more difficult on these characters. Like, what's more? What's more? trouble than having a baby in the zombie apocalypse you know but i think it's just taking two two babies in the zombie apocalypse (laughs) yeah maybe (laughs) twins i just feel like it's taking it a little too far it's too much we don't need that on our tv show there's enough going on to keep us entertained that having a baby in the mix is just going to be like really come on now they have to like they're going to be breastfeeding scenes there's going to be diaper changing scenes there's going to be they won't show that (laughs) well but they should if there's a baby that stuff has to happen like all the time babies are up all night i mean i have had two of them i know what it's like having a baby in a prison okay i think sort of makes sense but they'd have to stay in that prison until the baby was not a baby anymore i guess having a baby in woodbury you could say the same thing right yeah you're right they'd have to be there until the baby was Six, seven years old. Right. Which... Able to hold a gun. Not going not gonna to do good things for the show. So I guess we're saying here that uh, Lori has to die. Or something has to happen to the baby. They're not going to do what they did in M.A.S.H. Because, well, first of all, M.A.S.H. stole that from another book. I forget where, but my mom was very upset at the, clo- at the final episode of M.A.S.H. Because uh, she saw that coming a mile away because she read the book that they stole it from. Boy, your mom factors in big time in this podcast. Yeah, she does. <laughs> She gets pissed off at TV shows. Well, okay. That's fine. <laughs> and the spoilers. She really hates spoilers. I spoiled Cujo for her. Did I ever tell you that story? I don't think so. I never read Cujo. I never... Uh, I'm going to spoil Cujo here for, for everybody. Uh, I never read Cujo. I never saw the, the movie. Uh, my mom was reading Cujo back in the early 80s, and I just walked by, saw she was reading Cujo, and I just threw out a random thought, the boy dies. Mm. And apparently she, uh, she was only about a third of the way through the book, and at the end of the book, some boy died. She's never forgiven me. <laughs> well, random spoiler. You should maybe just uh, 
be careful what you say to your mom. Anyway, they're not going to kill a baby like they did in MASH because then they'll just be like, that happened to MASH. Come on. I don't think they're going to kill a baby like they did in the Walking Dead comic either, to be quite honest with you. That's true. Um, that, that killing a baby is a very uh, in my difficult thing to get across. <laughs> killing anyway. babies and punching babies. You don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't punch baby. Um, I, yeah, if I were to take a guess, I think Lori will, um, will be killed in this show before the baby is ever born. Or if she survives, for some reason, the baby's not going to survive. So who knows? That's true. Maybe she'll just have a miscarriage, and that'll be the end of that. And that'll be the end of that, exactly. She's pretty early in the Even having a miscarriage, though, with no actual doctors around, I guess Herschel's a doctor. It's still, you don't want to do that. So we'll see. No, but I mean, people have been having babies without doctors for a very long time, and I'm sure they've been having miscarriages without doctors for a very long time. It's important to, you know, check in with a doctor nowadays to make sure everything's okay. Yes. But, you you know, a woman's body can deal with that on its own. I don't know. In a very, you know, uh, basic situation. I, I don't really know enough to comment, but I assume you're right because people have been having babies for time immemorial Im, Im, immemorial no. immoral immoral time immoral, time immoral. <laughs> since the beginning of time <laughs> all right that's going to wrap up this podcast i think we have gone long enough uh if you want to contact us i highly recommend it you can give us a call on the zomb line that's 1-866-483-zomb it's a toll free call mm-hmm. so you don't have to pay anything no toll and we will never answer the phone. You will just call and leave up to a two-minute message for us. Mm-hmm. Or two two-minute messages. If you call twice. Yeah. <laughs> we are on Twitter at Talking Dead. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Talking Dead. Of course, that's where you're going to want to go to uh, post your favorite way to kill a zombie and officially enter that contest. Hey, I, fr- I mentioned off the top that we might have another contest coming up, so mm-hmm. I should probably uh, make good on that promise now. We have... A custom Daryl themed comic by friend of the show Dave, a short sort of poster style comic. It's three 11 by 17 posters. And he's done it up. It's all custom. It's very, very cool. I posted it on our Facebook page in case you uh, missed that. Go check it out. I did. Let me check it but out. But we're going to be giving that away to a lucky user. Uh, listener at some point <laughs> a user of the podcast that's right a user at some point we're still figuring out the details of how we're going to do that what it's going to take to give that away but keep listening so you can find out because it is a really really cool prize and uh you all want a copy i know you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we'll we'll come up with more information on that soon on a future episode uh stay tuned for that um and I should finish by saying that we are on uh, email at talkingdeadpodcast at gmail.com. Send all questions, correspondence, uh, otherwise to there. And uh, I think that's about it. Mm -hmm. All right, everyone, for The Talking Dead, my name is Chris. My name is Jason. Thanks for listening as always. Goodbye. (laughs) 